This is the Fixplasm podcast, dissecting fiction for role-playing inspiration, and I'm Ralph. This episode I'm going to talk about J.G. Ballard. Now, when Tom recommended The Tremor of Forgery, he described it as a crumbling resort world in a sort of Ballardian milieu, so that immediately put me in mind of uh, J.G. Ballard's Cocaine Nights, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. Cocaine Nights is the first in a, a suite of three novels, not really a trilogy, I, I think it's, just, it's a collective idea about gated communities. Um, it's followed by Supercan, which I haven't read, and Millennium People. Ballard's fiction generally falls into two kinds of fiction. The first one is humans adapting to radical changes. So, for example, the drowned world, or the drought. And then there's the other one, which is emergent subcultures in closed societies. Uh, so that's things like Crash, uh, Cocaine Nights to a certain extent, um, High Rise, uh, Concrete Island, I suppose, although that's kind of a combination of the two. So what I'm going to do, as usual, I'm going to cover the synopsis, uh, tell you a bit about the book, then I'm going to discuss the themes, and finally I'm going to talk about the role-playing bits. This is the synopsis, and I'm going to talk about it in terms of a, a three-act structure. In the first act, it's mostly a mystery. In the second act, it's kind of a, a slightly absurd, slightly surreal, almost Kafkaesque kind of Lynchian sort of thing. Uh, narrative full of the same sorts of characters but there's a lack of information yet there's a feeling of constant threat so in the first act if our if our protagonist has been a an investigator and has been acting proactively to uncover the mystery in the second act he's very much become defensive and the third act is a very strange twist in that it is a sort of initiation or indoctrination into the subculture that the character's been investigating for the first two thirds of the book. It opens in Estrella de Mar, uh, this sort of crumbling resort world. Good phrase, that. Um, almost literally, in fact, a crumbling resort world. Now, if you Google the phrase Estrella de Mar, you get a few different locations on the southern Spanish coast. And I, th- I think there's an Estrella del Mar and Estrella de Mar. This is Estrella de Mar. This, this Estrella de Mar is a resort town near Gibraltar. And the novel opens with a sort of a mystery and a tragedy. So the point of view character is Charles Prentice, a journalist, and his brother, Frank, the owner of the club Nautico, has confessed to the murder by arson of five people. Charles is absolutely convinced of Frank's innocence and that he is covering up for somebody else. But Frank has freely admitted it and... He is now languishing in a jail, awaiting trial. Charles is a journalist, and as such, he's well-suited to investigation, so he starts to unpick the mystery of why Frank would confess to a crime he would never commit. And in doing so, he comes into contact with uh, this strange uh, array of characters uh, in the sort of, as I said, Lynchian cast. We have uh, David Hennessy, the Club Nautico treasurer, uh, Paula Hamilton, who's a doctor from a private clinic that prescribes drugs to the residents to be legal drugs. Uh, there's Bobby Crawford, a charismatic tennis pro. Um, Dr. Sanger, the psychiatrist. Gunnar Anderson, the taciturn speedboat mechanic. Uh, and a range of other people. The, the Hollingers are the victims. Uh, we, we visit their destroyed mansion where they and a few other characters, their secretary and a, a notable character, the, a housemaid named Bibi Jansen, uh, were all killed in a fire at the height of a celebration. So Charles has inserted himself into this um, this strange resort world where people seem to have, uh, they go there to retire and 
basically to stagnate into a, a decadent and uh, bucolic lifestyle. Bucolic? I think that's the right word. It's all very eccentric, but at the same time, the characters are, uh, they're all behaving in an extremely chaotic and overly sexual way. So we, we have women prostituting themselves by walking the streets at night. We have a, he, at one point, he witnesses a, um, well, to put it bluntly, it's a sexual assault, although it seems that the it's actually a game and the, the victim is actually willing. But at the same time, they're surrounded by uh, voyeurs who are watching it taking place from their own vehicles. Um, he notices uh, boisterous and shocking behaviour at pools, uh, drunken sex parties, people stripping off and jumping into, uh, jumping into pools and that sort of thing. So in the task of unpicking the mystery, he's also got to understand the weird motivations behind all these different characters. And it's, uh, I like, uh, I've said Lynch in a few times, yes, it's, it's like a cast of David Lynch characters. And you can imagine there's, they all have peculiar motivations and poorly comprehended, at least by the reader and, and by our protagonist, poorly understood motivations for what seems to be adolescent behaviour. Once we've been immersed in this uh, peculiar behaviour and he's made contact with various characters uh, and gained their opinions on what happened, why the Hollingers were targeted for the arson attack, um, why Frank might have confessed, no one gives a satisfactory response to, and it's clear that everyone is playing their cards close to their chest and covering something up. He does begin his investigation, so it's not at all straightforward. He learns about the people who died, as I said, the, the Hollingers and uh, and their assorted you know, um, hangers-on uh, secretary employees, um, housemaid. As um, Charles Dix Deeper, we learn about Baby's addiction and how she was kept isolated by the Hollingers. And this is something that um, Garner Anderson has uh, very strong feelings about uh, because we learn that she was actually his daughter. He investigates the scene of the fire and finds the fire was set very deliberately using a combination of ether and gasoline vented into the air conditioning. So it was very thoughtfully destructive acts with a very specific mix of chemicals. Um, at the same time, he finds a an amateur pornographic tape at the site of the fire. And this further, this deepens the mystery because it has some of the residents easily identified in the tape. Um, with, again, not entirely consensual sex. And then he's attacked, and this is the point where he starts to become defensive and uh, the hunted rather than the hunter. Someone nearly strangles him to death. Uh, later, he's attacked by a, a hang glider, which is particularly surreal. He he witnesses more acts of arson. There's a, there's a burning of a stolen speedboat, and then his own hire car. And... He discovers that the residents indulge in other kinks. Uh, there's a flow of cocaine and heroin from North Africa, and this is facilitated by very fast speedboats, which the authorities are unable to catch. Finally, he gets to the central figure in all of this chaos, and it's bizarrely, it's Bobby Crawford. Bobby Crawford, the charismatic tennis coach, who is seemingly an anarchist and a kleptomaniac. And he gets close to Bobby and discovers Bobby has a personal philosophy where he believes that the the resort is sleepwalking, uh, it's too safe, and it needs an element of danger and a sense of a lack of security to make its residents actually feel alive. So all the while, 
the residents have come to this safe gated community where nothing really threatens them. So Bobby has reintroduced that threat by acts of burglary and other such criminal behaviours which um, create a low level of uh, insecurity and tension all throughout the resort. So the idea is it's to prevent the resort stagnating by providing fear as a stimulus. One of the other interesting things he says is that the, the cocaine and the heroin are direct antidotes to the legal prescription tranquilizers which are prescribed by the likes of Dr. Hamilton. Crawford is as charismatic as he is anarchic and he recruits Charles to his philosophy and tells him of this scheme to regenerate the entire Costa del Sol one resort at a time. So Estrella del Mar is, uh, is the first of what will be a string of transformations through violence through burglary and um and and uh sex and drugs um all across the southern coast of spain he um he's also encouraged a certain building of the community so there's a volunteer police force there are film clubs that he's recommended setting up those film clubs being of course the source of the uh, pornographic amateur sex tapes one of which Charles picked up in the mansion. Of course, this was put in his path by somebody. Um, Charles does at the same time become friends with Dr. Hamilton, and she knows something of Bobby's methods and his modes of operation. And she indicates that this pattern that Bobby is following is not the first time, And um, because at one point Bobby suggested to Charles that he should start a film club, and Dr. Hamilton said yes, and it's uh, about this time he would find somebody to start up a film club in his projects. So clearly this is a this creating a film community and a volunteer police force and the other and the, these other elements, they are all part of Bobby's grand plan to prevent the resort from slipping into a torpor. Eventually Bobby convinces Charles to take over the Club Nautico, his brother Frank's club, while Bobby goes off and begins to infect other resorts. So this is the cusp of the third act, and it's it's an initiation. Charles has been adopted by Bobby into this world of um, this exciting world of uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll, etc. And he, Charles, is obviously being completely, completely drawn in by Bobby's philosophy. And it's quite interesting to watch that because it's quite clear the point of view character has been taken in by a cult personality and they don't really realize it charles has been initiated into this inner circle and at this stage we still don't have an answer as to why frank confessed to the crime that brought him here so now that charles is fully responsible for the club nautico and he manages things whilst bobby crawford goes off and burgles other resorts he carries on with his duties here that Bobby has set for him, and he more or less ignores Frank. And he's, in the back of his mind, he justifies this by saying, thinking he can do more for Frank by getting to the bottom of the mystery uh, than visiting Frank in prison, which he's neglected Frank through several visits. And it's clear that we're building towards a climax with another house fire. This time, the target is actually Dr. Sanger, who's, who's something of a pariah in the community, and... It's hinted that you know, Dr. Sanger treated Bibi Jensen and he's taken another troubled young woman called Laurie Fox, who's it's kind of a weird echo of that character, uh, of uh, weird echo of the dead girl, or supposedly what we imagine is like, is like the dead girl. And Laurie Fox is 
troubled and she is prone to violent and sexual outbursts and it seems that Dr. Sanger is keeping her medicated, but probably medicated in a way that Crawford doesn't approve of. Crawford has emphatically denied, by the way, that he killed the Hollingers. Charles, Bobby was also the person who strangled Charles, it turns out. And this is phrased as, as not a violent act, but something he wanted to use to wake Charles up to the reality that he's trying to bring to the wider community. So we're building towards a climax with another potential act of arson. And in the last few pages, we kind of discover the extent of this cult-like behaviour and, and how deep it goes. You know, the strange thing is, it's it's very, it's very it puts me in mind of the Wicker Man in terms of, you know, that's all about a close community and you have um, an outsider investigating the disappearance of a young girl. In that case, he has his own philosophy, which is at odds to the villagers. But of course, in the Wicker Man... He retains that uh, worldview right to the end. And of course he's sacrificed for it. And it, But in some strange way, Charles has been indoctrinated in the stra- in the same way. Um, he's actually drunk the Kool-Aid. And he in turn, we can see it, that he's likely to be sacrificed. There's not many other ways that this all can end. And the inevitable happens. There's no way that a lone individual can fight against this conspiracy of Crawford and everyone else around them who have a reason to protect what they want. The main mystery then is the is people's actual motives. We find out who and why set the fire at the very end in the last few pages. I'm wondering how much more I should say because there's always this problem. I've, I've told you an awful lot of the structure of the book right to the end. In some ways, it feels like a uh, leaving things unfinished by not telling you actually how it ends, like how the murder was done. But the point of this is partly the very atmosphere that you encounter when reading this book. And I think this is true of other ballad books. And in a lot of cases, you can see how things are going to go in high rise. You can kind of see how things are going to go even in some of the post-apocalyptic novels, although those are more as you would expect, that you have a a bad situation which people have adapted to, and then uh, inevitably you'll get one or more antagonists who are profiting from this situation, and they are the true enemy that the protagonist will come face to face with. But this isn't a post-apocalypse. This is penetrating into a close community and a conspiracy of silence. And it's that sense that's makes it quite gripping to read all the way through. At least that's how I felt. I think I'm going to move on to the themes now. The first thing I want to talk about is a three-act structure. As I said, it's a mystery in the first act. Then it's a kind of a Kafkaesque chase with lots of random surrealism and philosophical outpourings in the second act. And then the third act is a kind of initiation into the secret world and the protagonist has been flipped over into believing the cult and being part of the cult. They're inside looking out rather than outside looking in. Still pursuing the mystery, of course. Now, one of the things that I I think I should say is that um, Ballard kind of does a good imitation of other kinds of genres, but the stories are never really in those genres. So 
he does a good imitation of science fiction. I mean, he's written right science fiction, but really, if you look at it, those are all about closed and isolated communities and people struggling in, in unusual circumstances. Uh, in here, he does a mystery, but it's it's not really a mystery. It quickly turns surreal, and it's much more an unpicking of the relationships around Estrella del Mar. And then later it becomes a random chase. And then finally, you've got a, com a complete inversion of his position relative to the gated community. And one of the things that Ballard does is draw boundaries really well. So, relating to that last point, Ballard draws precise boundaries between the interior and the exterior, and, and whether that's a physical location, like like the tower block in High Rise, or if it's a closeted society, like Vaughan's Little Club in Crash, or here, it's the circle of people in Estrella del Mar. So you have a boundary both from this community, uh, both isolating this community from the other communities, and you also, more importantly, have a boundary, a social boundary drawn between the people inside this community and their conspiracy, conspiracy to uh, imbibe, their conspiracy to enjoy sex, drugs and rock and roll and all that sort of thing, or the conspiracy to commit arson or other acts of anarchy and the rest of the world where this doesn't make sense it's not why people go away and, and retire they retire to feel safe so he's what Ballard does is he's given a central thing for all of the people inside the community to focus on it's um it's very cool of Cthulhu I just mentioned um the Wicker Man, of course. That's a uh, if you want to look for a horror story where with a, a conspiratorial element that seeks to um, hide something of importance from outsiders. That's a, an excellent example. But this isn't a bad one either. It does it in a much more subtle way, and there is an underlying philosophy. The first line of Cocaine Nights actually is "Crossing frontiers is my profession." That's, that's the first word we hear Charles Prentice speak. It's written in the first person. And that line is nothing if not autobiographical of Ballard himself. A lot of his books are about crossing boundaries. So he's an expert at separating communities and identifying what makes people part of the club as opposed to being outside the club. And of course, some of the things that mark the characters inside Estrella del Mar are the same sorts of things we see in the degenerate society we see in High Rise. I'm going to talk about High Rise at some point in a later point. But it's things like it's depravity and transgression, which are all, they're kind of easy, slightly lazy things to do. The reason they work is because the characters who do them are they're so middle class they're so unlikely it's kind of the joke about the 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 middle class swingers who with the um with with the the beige wallpaper and the and the valance around the bottom of their um their sofas and yet they do they like to do terribly kinky things um that sort of thing that kind of absurdity to a certain extent that said i mean 
having your characters act in a particularly depraved way, taking drugs, having sex, prostituting themselves, it's not very groundbreaking. I think the thing that the thing that makes it interesting is that it's all so commonplace. Um, but I, I wonder if you could pick a better theme than that if you were going to replicate this. I guess you would have stories like, uh, I don't know, the Stepford Wives or other examples of where you have a community keeping a secret. The sequel to Westworld, Future World, is a lot like that. Of course, in Westworld, you have a tragedy where the where the robots run amok because of bad programming. Um, in Future World, it's actually it's all a human plot, which makes it vastly less interesting, quite frankly, because it's not a disaster. It's by design. I do wonder, though, all this this obsession with you know sex and trans transgressive and juvenile behaviour is this is this just satire? Maybe to a certain extent, um, is Ballard satirising the typical trouble in paradise type of motif? Um, or is he just subverting it? I'm not sure. It does have an ideological purpose, and that's possibly the saving grace. Uh, some horror authors like Clive Barker, hello, uh, do end up with transgression for transgression's sake, and I don't quite think we're that bad. I'm going to talk about Clive Barker in a later episode as well. Um, but transgression is, by definition, crossing a boundary. So... What we've really got, coming round to my point, and we're thinking about the way Ballard draws boundaries not only about the physical locations, but around the sensibilities of communities and the way that they conspire to be silent, to close ranks, to keep outsiders outside. We've got to think a little bit about crossing those boundaries and about initiation. And Estrella Lamar doesn't have terribly many gates to pass through. There aren't many layers of the onion. But if you're thinking about a role-playing game, like a mystery game or horror game, where you have a conspiracy of silence, or you, you have a conspiracy where things are not as they seem, then there'll always be people on the inside and there'll be people on the outside. Now, of course, in the uh, fairly banal version of that is the, the any cultists in Call of Cthulhu because they are out there to protect their own interests and exact their plans. And the getting inside of that is rarely about social integration. It's usually about penetrating that circle by force. But it's a lot more interesting when characters are swept up when they involve themselves with the enemy. It's what makes something like The Wire so compelling when you have it, things with undercover police blurring the lines between the uh, criminal and the police. So that makes me think about the games that I'd want to run. One of the things, and of course, the first thing I want to talk about is, is lag. Going back to the previous episode around the tremor of forgery, I was thinking about a couple of things. One is about the the various spheres that people work in and the effort one needs to penetrate those spheres and how likely characters are to be able to interact in them based on their experience. Individual archetypes uh, have access to one or more spheres and what that means is these are social environments that they're comfortable operating in. 
And if I wanted to mechanize that, then of, of course, uh, there's a couple of things that come to mind. If you, first of all, you've, if you want to draw attention to different kinds of spheres, then that has to be part of the hard framing of scenes that you actually say, this is happening in this particular social environment. And the distinction about it, it is a particular class of society. It's a particular group of people who know something. And some characters will be comfortable in that and some won't be. The problem I've got with lag is that um, because different characters don't really interact outside the hotel, unless you contrive it to do so, they're unlikely to be made uncomfortable by being in a sphere where they have no experience. What's more likely is that you'll have a lot of different solo games and the characters will be, they'll be aware of the spheres that they're in. But let's, let's think about that to its logical conclusion. Characters in a foreign country pursuing their own aims. Initially, they're expecting to be involved in a sphere of interaction that they're comfortable with. So the, um, so the, the celebrity is expecting to be operating the sphere of fame and they know exactly what to do in that sphere. They are entertaining people, they're interacting with fans, they're using their fame to their advantage, and that's fine. But at some point, what happens when they cross a boundary? and they find themselves no longer interacting in that sphere, but in a different one. They're subsumed into the underworld, where they're asked to do something illegal, or they're absorbed into the government, or the corporate sphere, where they're asked to do something distasteful, or they don't exactly understand the the um, contractual obligations they're being put under. All of that's possible. And, and of course, you have pilgrim characters who uh, they're comfortable in their esoteric world, but they've got to cross a lot of boundaries in order to actually get to the truth. Um, I think trying to think in terms of the other archetypes, what examples there are. Of course, those two are in my mind because those were the part of the play test. But yeah, in terms of lag, um, it could make this idea of spheres work for me uh, by putting hurdles in the way of the characters on their on their quest. Now, I'm thinking of making it a bit more powered by the apocalypse. So, so then the uh, the way that you probably mechanise that is they will have moves and they want to achieve what they want as part of their mission. And of course, um, putting hurdles in place are going to be part of the hard moves that the GM has at their disposal. So maybe maybe some of the moves actually allow them to cross boundaries and learn new information. Um, you know reading stitches, reading people, that sort of thing, and getting critical pieces of information. But at the same time, uh, maybe hard moves where they get on a six minus. Those can actually be points where the characters stumble over the boundaries that they would be better off not crossing. And they end up interacting with characters who come from completely different worlds and worlds that they are not at all prepared to deal with. You know, the the shadow underworld crime boss or the, the heartless corporate or, or whoever we're talking about in the previous examples. Okay, I've rambled on a bit. I've rambled on a bit about um, crossing boundaries. Let's think about the, the other side of that, which is um, adopting new perspectives. Very hard thing to do in role-playing games to actually convince players of an alternative reality and alternative philosophy and get them to adopt it and modify their behavior to some i imagine that's actually anathema to their way of role-playing there's a couple of ways i think you could do that uh, one is is something like um 
incentivize it with um, social tokens like uh, Monster Heart strings. So let's say that uh, for whatever reason um, you want the character to react in a certain way once they're over the threshold and they've been indoctrinated into this new group of people. You could use a string, you could have strings on them and you could also give them strings on other people. Uh, strings on other people, of course, are going to be... They can pull those to get to offer incentives to get them to do what they want. Um, strings on the character allow the MC to pull that character in different directions. At least I, I think that that's probably massively oversimplifying Monster Hearts. And to be honest, I never really enjoyed using strings. I always used to manage to hoard them when I played. Um, doesn't really make much sense to that. But you could imagine a token economy that... Um, encourages and rewards certain kinds of behavior uh, and while we're still thinking about power by the apocalypse it is very good at incentivizing certain things and allowing people to gain experience very quickly so this is a half-baked thought at the moment but what you really want to do the goal is to have it such that the player is in a, a place where they're comfortable out in this new world that they're exploring, they understand what it's like to be streetwise or, or to be famous or to be corporate or whatever, and then bang, you, you get them to stumble over the threshold and suddenly they are indoctrinated into a new world that you don't really, they don't really understand, they don't know the people, they're starting to get to know the people. At that stage, um, I guess it's kind of like the bit in Apocalypse World where where your HX goes up and up and up with somebody and then it gets, it, I think it goes back down to zero and suddenly you don't understand the person anymore, having grown closer and closer to them. And you think about that in a sort of, in a social context, and sort of, yes, I'm getting the hang of it, I know what it's like to move around and next year I'm doing really well and then suddenly, bang, you stumble over that threshold and you have no clue. You, everyone around you is new. Everyone is a potential threat or potential new ally they have the potential to show you new and interesting sites you'd never expected to see or to cause you unimaginable harm i think what has to happen is you have to be very surprising you have to confound expectations and then allow the player to react to that and to be honest i'm not exactly sure how to do it but i think this crossing of boundaries is important Last thing I want to talk about is uh, three act structures. I mean, do we run role playing games like three acts with three acts? Um, I have run games like that, and and if you think about how uh, Charles' original reason for being there, the mystery, it kind of evaporates fairly quickly. I've run a lot of games like that where um, characters are drawn together some for some reason that that is you know immediately compelling it's the it's the original hook in your one shot that you've you've put out for your con or whatever and then and then actually it turns out the game's about something else and that's that's then in your second act but there's going to be a boundary that people cross over the first reveal where things aren't always as they seem so uh, in content in, in cocaine nights of course he, he starts pushing too many buttons in his investigation suddenly starts getting pursued that is actually 
not an uncommon setup. You have a bunch of investigators who are investigating to something, and at some point they attract enough attention that it makes things really bad for them. But of course, in the third act of Cocaine Nights, we have Charles falling into Bobby Crawford's orbit and being completely taken in by this charismatic character. And here's where we know it would never work in a role-playing game. PCs are never won over by NPCs, at least not, not emotionally, not not in the emo- the sort of, not with, in the sort of emotional way that PCs can interact with PCs, and get on side or get under each other's skin. PCs can be influenced by NPCs, pissing them off, and they can, probably they they can, admire them or be attracted to them or or whatever. But I don't think they'd ever be taken in, because players are distrustful. Distrustful with of everyone, possibly with the exception of each other. Not always. I guess even if Crawford were another PC, you wouldn't expect Charles, played by a PC, to fall for Crawford, would you? I think I'm going to leave it at there, because I expect there'll be more to discuss when I cover some of other some other ballad. I'm probably going to cover Supercount before too long, but I've got to read it first, and before then I've got something of a mini-project for the next couple of episodes to discuss. So until next time, have a good one. Did you like this episode? If so, maybe you could write us a review on iTunes, or you could at me at Victorplasm on Twitter, or leave a comment on the website, which is www.victorplasm.net, or join our Facebook group. It's all good. Really appreciate those people who've reached out to give their positive feedback. The music for this podcast is provided by Chris Zabriskie. You can find more of at www.chrissabriskie.com.